You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. We'll take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 7. I was thinking earlier, uh, between the two songs, as you heard some ambient noise, you know the singing is good when it's setting off car alarms. So, well done. This past week, I was doing some reading on New Year's resolutions. I wanted to get a hold of some hard science. So I read through a number of studies that have been conducted in the last few years. One study done by Harris Interactive was published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology, and it revealed some fascinating numbers. Here are, here are a few that I found particularly interesting. of Americans make New Year's resolutions. 66% of these resolvers set fitness goals as part of their resolutions. All those interviewed for this study cited at least four times in the past they had made the same resolution and failed to keep it. Liars. In fact, one in three people ditched their resolutions by the end of January. So this particular research revealed that when it's all said and done, 73% of those who make New Year's resolutions give up before meeting their goal. Now, even though I found the study interesting, I did not find it surprising. I didn't find it surprising because my own experience mirrors the study's details. Friends, what if we did something similar in reference to our spiritual lives? If we polled each member of this church and asked each of you how many times you've read a book that challenged your commitment to Christ in some way, or you heard a sermon that was convicting, and and then you made a decision to change. But just a few months or weeks, or days, or hours later, you failed. You dropped the ball. You gave up. You became frustrated and discouraged, wondering, why do I even try? I think what I've described, and this could be our response when we study certain parts of Scripture that deal heavily with our behavior. In fact, I wrestled with this the first time I studied the Sermon on the Mount. So much of what Jesus says deals with right behavior, right attitudes, and right actions. So it's all convicting, and and every true believer who studies Christ's words will will have a desire to, to conform to what he says, but... 100% of the people who want to live righteously will fail. So whether we're talking about your desire to be more sacrificial and loving in your parenting, or your desire to be a more Christ-like spouse, or the implications of the gospel that are pushing you to be more generous, whether you're continuing to wrestle with besetting sin or trying to grow in boldness as a witness for Jesus, here's my 
primary question for you this morning as we begin a new year together. When you want to change and you're keenly aware of your history of failure, where does this leave you? Is the Christian life this side of heaven destined to be a life of spiritual defeat and depression? The answer is no, but let me explain. One way we can answer this important question is found in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. Look at the text with me. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? First, understand that this text is connected to Jesus' entire sermon. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has painted a picture of, of what should mark the lives of his true believers. The Sermon on the Mount is how citizens of God's kingdom can live in the world and yet be distinct from the world. Jesus is not, Jesus is not explaining how sinful people can get into his kingdom in the sense that he would say, here, do these things and I will receive you because you've met my standard. Rather, when God saves a sinner by sheer grace and the Spirit indwells this redeemed sinner, the Sermon on the Mount then explains the shape of this new life in Christ. And guess what? It is not a life of perfect obedience. It's not a life of perfect obedience. The only one who lived out the Sermon on the Mount perfectly also died as a substitute for sins he never committed. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't give us a behavioral blueprint so we can have confidence in our own righteousness. No, it points us to Jesus' perfect righteousness and leads us to trust and rest in him and, and does so in some really practical ways. So what happens when God makes sinners new by his spirit? Well, their belief produces behavior. The kind of behavior we encounter in the Sermon on the Mount. Things like humility, mercy, purity, hunger for righteousness, perseverance in suffering. Friends, this is the context that brings us to Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. At its most basic level, this is a reminder for us to pray. As we consider what Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount throughout Scripture, and we remember our indwelling sin and our ongoing spiritual struggles and our regular pattern of failure, we need to be reminded that we are not hopeless, brothers and sisters. We are not hopeless, but we are desperate, aren't we? 
This is actually where the Beatitudes begin. Back in chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus is not teaching that there is something you can do, an attitude that you can cultivate that will get you into heaven. But he is teaching that saving faith requires humility and repentance. It is God's gracious work in a sinner's life that brings him to see his sin, to turn from his sin, and place his faith in Christ alone. But as we've said so many times before, we are not only saved by grace, but we are sanctified by grace. So we do not stop being poor in spirit once we are given new life. But our ongoing disposition as children of God is poverty of spirit. We are needy. D.A. Carson writes, we cannot receive the virtues characteristic of those in the kingdom unless they are given by God. In other words, it makes perfect sense that Jesus would remind us numerous times throughout his sermon that we are desperate for him and therefore we must seek after him in prayer. Again, Carson writes, no spiritual progress, now listen to this, no spiritual progress is made apart from God's grace. That's a good place to begin a new year. As you think about the ways you want to experience change, the ways you want to experience growth, no spiritual progress is made apart from God's grace. We need grace, and so we pray. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ, purchased by his blood, we come boldly before the throne of grace. Verses 7 through 11 are a call to desperate and persistent prayer. We pray that God, by his grace, will produce in us all that he desires from us. This is the wonderful thing about the Christian life. Everything God desires from you, he will supply the grace for. We need his grace to produce in us what we can never manufacture on our own, like everything mentioned in the Beatitudes. God's grace transforms self-seeking and self-serving wretches into those who are humble and merciful and pure. Only God's grace can replace our appetite for immediate pleasure and fleeting happiness with a hunger for righteousness and a deep abiding joy even in suffering. It is God's grace alone that turns our natural propensity to sinfully judge others into a spirit of patience and charity toward those we naturally despise. Brothers and sisters, we must ask God for his radical work of grace. We are in desperate need of change. And at a time of the year when we tend to look for a new program or a recent discovery that will finally be the answer to our problems, we must realize that there is no secret strategy for heart change. There's no secret strategy for heart change, but there is sufficient grace. That's good news. There's no secret 
strategy, but there is sufficient grace. So some of you have ignored grace for too long, and you've tried in your own strength to change, and it's led to failure. So in your desperation, Jesus calls you to pray. Instead of leaning on your own understanding, relying on your own strength, Jesus calls you to pray. But I want you to see here that Scripture does not present this as a casual or reluctant activity. Right, too often we're like, well, nothing else will work. I guess I'll pray. This is not what we find here at all. Look again at verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. One theologian explains in the perfect threefold symmetry of these two verses, the imperatives are emphatic. And in the present tense, keep on asking keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Ask, seek, knock, and keep on doing it. These are the words of Jesus. Be like that child on Christmas Eve asking if they can open just one present before Christmas Day. Or the child who can't take no for an answer, so he goes back and forth between parents until one of them finally gives in and says yes. I imagine that when you hear something like that, you might be thinking, well, I, I don't want to bother or annoy God. I've confessed this sin so often. I've asked for his grace in this area a thousand times. He must be sick of me. He's got to be fed up by now. Friends, if that's what you're thinking, Jesus would, would like to correct your faulty thinking. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Notice that there's a pretty clear sense of certainty in Jesus' words here. It will be given. You will find. It will be open. Well, how can this be? How can this be? This this doesn't jive with your experience. You feel more often than not like prayer is an exercise in futility. Now let me give you a couple of thoughts at at that point. For the person who's going, I'm having trouble believing what this text says about prayer. Just a couple of thoughts before we move on. First, are you viewing prayer as a mere spiritual exercise rather than the heartfelt pursuit of God himself. Is prayer what Christians do or is prayer the means by which you run after God? Notice again the words used. Ask, seek, Knock, all are active, all are done with a sense of anticipation. You ask because you want some answer. You seek because you hope to find something. You knock believing someone will answer. Friends, what is the aim of your asking, seeking, and knocking? I love what A.W. Tozer wrote in his classic, The Pursuit of God. Listen to what he says. Oh God, 
I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need of further grace. I am ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this. Friends, this is prayer. Prayer is far more than a spiritual exercise. It is the heartfelt pursuit of God himself. Second thought here, do your prayers reflect the teaching of Jesus? Or are they simply a series of requests for comfort, ease, and temporal happiness? If our prayers are to be informed by the word of God, then according to Jesus' own teaching, our first impulse should not always be for God to deliver us from difficulty. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Prayer is not a ticket out of difficulty or a guaranteed escape from suffering. Often, prayer is what sustains you in your suffering. A third and final thought here. What does Jesus say as he is teaching his followers to pray, as he's teaching us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Prayer is not our way to inform God of our agenda. But prayer is God's gracious way of aligning our desires with His. E. Stanley Jones once wrote, and it gives us a wonderful picture. He says, prayer is surrender. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. All prayer must be firmly rooted in a right knowledge of God. We frame our requests in accordance with what we know of the character of the one whom we are addressing. This is Jesus' point in verse 9, back to our text. He says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? So picture it with me. A small child who is still very dependent upon his parents becomes hungry. And so he does what 
a child would naturally do. He goes to mommy. But in this case, he goes to daddy. The child doesn't fully understand the responsibility that God has placed upon his father's shoulders, but he does know in a simple and childlike way that when he is in need, he can go to dad. And so he climbs up in his father's lap and with those big trusting eyes looking up at him, he asks for something to eat. Daddy, I'm hungry. Could I have some bread and fish? This is a daily occurrence, but, but this day, according to this illustration, the father's reaction is different. Instead of giving his son bread and fish, he gives him a stone and a snake. Two things that certainly will not satisfy his child's hunger, they'll actually bring him harm. Now, if any of us were to witness such an event, we would become confused and our confusion would quickly give way to anger. This is not how a father is supposed to act. A father does not harm his child. A father sacrificially loves and provides for his children. Exactly. Exactly. So why do so many of us pray like God is the Father who gives the stone and snake. What does Jesus say in verse 11? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The reasoning is simple. If earthly fathers who are sinful, every one of them, if even they give good gifts to their children, then how much more will a perfectly loving God give to his children good things? Jesus brings attention to the contrast in natures. All earthly fathers are sinful, but God is perfect in righteousness. But even though I'm sinful and my heart desires evil, my children... My children can come to me and ask me for something without any hesitation because they know I love them. I have shown them over and over in hundreds of ways that I care and that I want to give them good things. Who they understand me to be gives them confidence to keep coming and keep asking for good things. So how much more? How much more, brothers and sisters, should you have confidence to run to your heavenly Father when you're in need? Not only does He give you your daily bread, sustaining you by His power and kindness, but He has given you His Son. He has proven His kindness. And yet we're slow. We're slow. We're hesitant to run to Him. Now don't overlook the phrase at the end of verse 11. To those who ask Him. To those 
who ask him. This takes us right back to the beginning of verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. And this is one of the most wonderful truths of the Christian faith. The Creator God, who is sovereign and holy, is also your Father. And He begs you, He begs you, He pleads with you to come to Him and ask. Come, ask. Ask for good things because He delights to provide for His children. This is the picture of the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Even though the son wished his father was dead and squandered all the father had given him, still the father longs to provide for his son, and so he waits. And I picture him standing on his porch, looking out every single day, speaking into the air, son, just come home. Come home, and I will receive you. I will provide what you need. Just come home. Your father pleads with you, ask, seek, knock, keep doing it. And we know the character of God is not to turn a deaf ear, is not to stiff arm you. Too many of us fail to see our heavenly father in this way, the way that's depicted in this text. And we need to see him again as he truly is. So friends, I don't know what you're all facing. I know what some of you are facing. I don't know what everyone is facing. I know some of you are ill. Or you have loved ones who are ill. Some of you have dear family members who don't know Christ. Some of you are feeling spiritually defeated. Struggling with the same sin over and over again. Some of you are secretly miserable, enslaved to sin, desperately wanting relief, just hoping that no one ever finds out. Some of you have been struggling with guilt and shame for years. Some of you want to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, but you feel like he's always disappointed with you. Some of you are anxious. Your heart is filled with fear. You just want a little relief. And especially this time of the year, you're, you're looking back and you're looking forward. And it's not, a, it's not an exciting time for you. Christian friend, whatever you're facing... I cannot, I cannot promise you an immediate answer or immediate relief, but I can promise you that God will hear you. God will hear you when you cry out to Him. He wants you to come, to come hard after Him. He wants to meet you in your need and give you grace. Brothers and sisters, to use one of the dominant pictures within the Sermon on the Mount, if, if we're going to be salt and light, living humbly, graciously, mercifully, patient, joyful, courageous lives for the glory of Christ, but, but in the midst of a crooked and perverse world, then we need to commit ourselves to prayer. 
We need to embrace our desperate need and total dependence upon God. We need to ask God to work in us and through us. We need to ask for the Spirit's sanctifying work. We need to ask for His constant and transforming grace. We need to ask for His wisdom and understanding. Some of you need to ask God to reveal Himself to you more clearly to correct your understanding of who He is. Friends, again, your prayer life is directly, your prayer life is directly connected to what you believe about God. If you believe that He is an angry Father, you will never be able to please, then you'll only want to talk to Him when you're on top of your spiritual game, not when you're in your time of greatest need. If you believe that God doesn't want His children to ever suffer, then you will only pray for deliverance, but never for patience and never for endurance. If you believe that God is stingy, you won't ask Him for good things and you'll feel guilty when you enjoy His good gifts. Friends, I want you to see who God is he pleads with you, come, come to me in prayer. Come, ask, seek, knock. Consider the words of this wise Christian pastor. When you pause, when you pause to consider that God is infinitely strong and can do all that he pleases and that he is infinitely righteous so that he only does what is right, and that he is infinitely good so that everything he does is perfectly good, and that he is infinitely wise so that he always knows perfectly what is right and good, and that he is infinitely loving so that in all his strength and righteousness and goodness and wisdom, he raises the eternal joy of his loved ones as high as it can be raised. When you pause to consider this, then the lavish invitations of this God to ask him for good things with the promise that he will give them is unimaginably wonderful. Do you see how those are connected? Who God is and how you go to him in prayer. Friends, when you understand who God truly is, you will run to him in prayer. I, I love the words of the great hymn writer John Newton. He says this, Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Father, we have gathered this morning to hear from you. <clears throat> we believe that the word of God we hold in our hands is breathed out by you. And because it's breathed out by you, God, we believe that it's profitable 
It's profitable to tell us what is right. To convict us of what is wrong. To correct us so that we can walk forward in righteousness. Your Word trains us so that we might be mature. Equipped for everything You have called us to do. So Father, we pray that by the Holy Spirit, our hearts would be stirred this morning. And do, O triune God, what only you can do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.